um, usually to round out a retreat, especially with so many of you being new at this and most of you going home, there are a few hints at how to bring the practice into daily life. But in the discussion group this afternoon, this morning, uh, some of that got opened up and dealt with uh, and much of it was not finished. So this is not an attempt to be a definitive statement as to what to do with Vipassana when you go home. Although the basic principles are pretty simple. Same thing you were doing here. You know, pay attention and learn from that and then act in accordance with what you learn. I think it all has to do with uh, what you might call wisdom in action. How to bring wisdom into our living when we're not sitting or doing formal walking or any other formal practice. And wisdom has to do with the science or art of happiness, of the art of living. A wise person is someone who to some degree knows how to live, has learned how to live. People who are not wise are constantly having problems. We all have problems, but wisdom is, uh, prevents a lot of them, or when they come up, there are even wise ways of working with these problems. And <clears throat> at least in this particular approach, uh, the model for wisdom is a rather simple one. It's cause and effect. In one sense, it's karma, having to do with large spans of time. Whether you believe in that or not, whether you believe in rebirth or not, perhaps you already have seen that some of the things that you do have consequences. <clears throat> that is, certain actions cause certain effects. You touch fire, you get burned. Perhaps after the third or fourth time, you don't do it anymore. A thousandth time, however long it takes. Yeah. But other things are like fire, but are not so uh, conveniently identified. They're labeled something else. They say happiness, and we get burned anyway. And so we keep coming back to the label. Well, it says happiness. Yeah, but you keep getting burned. No, no, but the la- it says happiness. <laughs> So the, the art of wisdom is accumulating the causes for happiness. That is, if there is a relationship between cause and effect, then it means learning how to put together, how to assemble, how to cultivate those causes which tend towards happy outcomes. Certain courses of action, ways of relating to people, ways of relating to our mind and body seem to have uh, outcomes that are happy and others seem to be painful. And so it's learning that. And the way we learn it is by in the midst of our life. It's living out our life and we really are our own teacher. I mean, other people can make suggestions, but that wouldn't be actual wisdom. That would be secondhand wisdom. Just what I'm doing now, if anything is said that makes some sense to you, it's perhaps of some value, but only insofar as you make it your own. That is, test it in your own life. Use it and find out that, in fact, it is true, that it's helpful. Otherwise, it's just a nice idea which will make you feel good. 
you got a lot of nice ideas and you can repeat them to your friends and bring them to parties and it feels good every time you say it. We are all one, except the people who don't believe we are all one. <laughs> so these are all meant not as something to subscribe to, but something to take on and to learn about. And the levels of wisdom are quite various. They're just very ordinary, what are sometimes called earthy wisdom, street-wise wisdom now. You hear that a lot. We meet people who seem to have wisdom in a particular area. They know their way around. They kind of intuit what to do and what not to do. And so there are many gradations of wise living, of skillful living. And then when it starts to get deeper, having to do with the nature of things, that's when all spiritual work enters. All real religious work comes into that. Vipassana is just one one way of going about that. Uh, Attempting to bring together some of the, the questions that were not finished and also some very basic things that, uh, that a fair number of you who are very new to the practice, I think, need to know or be useful to know. Wisdom enters immediately as you leave here. Perhaps you've come to a certain amount of peace, a certain amount of tranquility or, or joy or concentration. Perhaps you've learned a few things. Maybe it was a useful weekend for you and you like IMS. Then as you get into your car, with each succeeding as the gauge, you know, in terms of miles, starts ticking off. The concentration starts withering away. The peace starts crumbling. The irritability starts to go up. And suddenly, instead of an environment that's been intentionally organized to facilitate and protect and further concentration, serenity, wisdom, namely this place, suddenly you go into a place that seems to be organized to create just the opposite. Intentionally organized by some demonic force (laughs) to drive all meditators crazy. Things suddenly become loud and inconsiderate and again all those carnivores crawling around driving past us very rapidly and cutting us off. And so the first lesson in wisdom might be to start to see that everything is dependent on conditions, on causes and conditions. And what we have learned here to some degree is dependent on causes and conditions. And, but we can't stay here for, forever. And we learn a few things. Some of it carries over. But then as the causes and conditions change, then some of those Mind states, of course, have to change. And so seeing that is actually continuing the practice or seeing your samadhi start to disintegrate because the conditions have changed is actually a high form of learning and really practicing vipassana. Or is understanding that that's the way it is. That's the way it goes. And actually, in a strange way, seeing that, you become very concentrated again. Whereas, if you grab onto, cling to, whatever it is that IMS is supposed to be about or that you feel you've experienced uh, and use that as some kind of frame of reference and start measuring everything against it, there'll be a lot of suffering. 
because you are not at IMS anymore. You're on Route 122 or wherever you are. And somehow the conditions change quite a bit. So then when we get home, if the practice... uh, I I seem to be speaking mainly to very new people. So those of you who have been practicing for a while, bear with me. You've heard some version of this probably. Definitely, yeah. If this practice is of value to you, in other words, if you've learned something that seems really appropriate, if there's an affinity developed, intuitively you sense that it's right, even if you had a very hard time, then it stands to reason to try to do those things to protect it. In other words, wisdom would be to assemble conditions that help to protect what you've begun to learn here. If, on the contrary, you have not found an affinity with the practice here, with the teachings, didn't, you just don't connect with them, really don't, then don't conclude that you're not a meditator or you're not cut out for, for contemplative life or anything of that sort. There's so many different styles and modes of meditation and for different temperaments, and different, different kinds of people. Then what I would do is let go of this. You might want to try it again somewhere else or whatever, but it might be to trust your judgment, let go of it, and then keep looking. Don't conclude that your meditation life is over just because you had uh, a difficult time and you didn't connect with a particular kind of teaching or teacher or the techniques. If you did connect, then some of the very uh, helpful conditions to try to bring into existence would be to sit regularly try to find a way of protecting that. If it's valuable, then try to protect it. The odd thing is that many people conclude that this is valuable and then become devoured as they return home by all the different things that are going on, the many ways in which we've been living before we came to meditation. And days and weeks and months go by and suddenly we've lost it. So then we run back to IMS for, to recharge our batteries. It's better if you can take it and maintain some kind of a continuity, stability of practice, which might take some awareness and reflection. How do I see to it that I have, let's say, an hour of silence a day, an hour just for me to enter into silence and to be with myself and to see what's there? Perhaps two hours a day. I don't know. I don't know what your motivation or what your life is like. But if you conclude it's valuable, then perhaps you can organize your life so as to protect what you've learned. And that would be a form of wisdom in action. It isn't just living off the nice feelings that you've had on a weekend retreat. That's, that's all over with. That's just memory. Wisdom would be to appreciate those memories when they come up, but understand that those are memories and what is necessary is to constantly remain alive, is to to bring these teachings, these practices into the moment, into the moment, into the moment. It's helpful if there are people where you live who could to sit with, as you probably have learned. It's a big help to have a community, a sangha, to practice with, of like-minded people, because we get discouraged, but then we peek and there are these people they haven't left yet, so we stay. And they give us energy, we give them energy. Sometimes all it takes is one other person, perhaps meeting once a week in someone's home for an hour, 
to help keep a kind of the flame alive until you can perhaps come to other places where it's practiced. What I found in general is at first, assuming that you value what you've learned here, we attempt to fit it into our ongoing schedule. As we take a look at our week, you know, those spiral books which have all the days and people penciled in, activities penciled in, we look in and we try to fit meditation in. That's the first phase, assuming that you value it. But the next phase is when the practice becomes so self-evidently valuable for you and only you will know. You you really see that it's quite a high priority, in a sense, the highest priority. Not the official or formal trappings, but the need to stay in touch with ourselves, to remain aware of how things are. It's not a luxury, I don't think. Well, when that day comes, then the priorities totally seem to shift around rather than trying to fit it in to the way we already live, we change the way we live in order to protect the practice. And often that what that means is, sometimes coincide, we start to see a lot of the things that we're doing are really not valuable. We don't even enjoy them. We've been doing them for years. And actually, when we think about it, we've been ready to drop them for years, but we haven't. So they're not very valuable. And yet they go on and on and on. You know, they just have a life of their own. When the practice gets strong enough, you start seeing things like that and learning how to let go of them, how to investigate, how to to watch it, to watch them, and how to let them go and to replace them, replace, use that time for something that is creative. Now, this would be no different. It could be for anything, really, that you learn that you learn to love. It could be an art form or dance. If it's meditation, It needs to be practiced. A certain momentum needs to be developed. Because just think of the power of our habit patterns, how much practice we've had being ourselves, how much practice we've had being inattentive, let's say. In fact, you could say that who we are today is largely due to a lifetime of inattentiveness, nothing personal. Or selectively attentive. Well, how is, how is that going to be in any way transformed by, let's say, 10 minutes every fourth day? <laughs> or opening up Zen mind, beginner's mind, and tears coming to your eyes, and then close, closing the book, and it's, the Dharma is fantastic. <laughs> so... And then we got into the, we, we must, we come into the area of, of our daily life, our jobs, relationships, if we're in school, whatever it is that we do. In general, because we don't have a huge amount of time, I wanted to talk about a few areas in more detail because those are the questions that we didn't have time to deal with. In general, the principle is not that complicated. It's living our life as we're living it right now. I mean, there's no reason to necessarily change anything you're doing unless you want to. But now, bringing awareness into it, bringing sensitivity alongside of or in the midst of how you're living. 
begin to scrutinize or get a sense of how you actually live. I mean, how do I actually live? Not some gloss or generalized statement about some lifestyle. I, I live a kind of vegetarian New Age. Not that. Please, not that. I live in Cambridge. Yeah. <laughs> But rather, from moment to moment, uh, each moment being, in a sense, a challenge. Each moment, something objective happens and there's a subjective response to it. All day long that's going on. Or something happens and we respond to it. Someone gives you the Boston Globe, you give them 25 cents. You might say, well, nothing happened. I had no response. That's something to learn about. Wait a minute, a human being just handed you a newspaper and you gave him 25 cents. Oh, that's right. Did you notice the person's face? No. How often have you been buying the Boston Globe? Oh, 10 years or so. You know, things like this. So that the, the, the potential for learning is all over the place, wherever you go. But mainly, it's what really is helpful is becoming, developing an instinct more and more to be sensitive to your reactions as they happen. It's helpful later on to track it, to come back to it and say, oh, look what happened. This is why I lost my temper. And that can be helpful, perhaps uh, point to areas that need some attention in our own development. But what's most helpful is when the awareness is right there as whatever is happening is happening. So we're learning on the spot. At least we're registering what's happening on the spot. And then more and more, learning from what we see and hear. And then, of course, there's another step, which is, for some reason, difficult for us all. We understand, as let's say, if we could simplify it, uh, we are paying attention to our reactions and we begin to learn. We begin to understand ourselves. the next step of translating that understanding into action is for some reason very difficult for us. And so we very often betray that understanding. We don't live what we know. Or it takes a huge time gap between what we understand and when we finally start to live it. Whatever it is, a decision that needs to be made, something that has to be let go of, something that has to be added on, some change, we have a hard time with that. That itself can be absorbed into the practice. When we start to inquire, why don't I live my understanding? Here's something I know, but I yet I don't seem to live in behalf of that understanding. That itself is, is part of the practice. That's interesting. You know, I say this meditation is wonderful and I love it, but I never do it. This is a common thing, or very rarely, or I only do it when there's a class or a retreat. But I really value it. It's the most valuable thing on the planet but I don't do it. Okay, why? So that itself become, becomes part of, a, part of the practice. It's not separate. And so if we can bring this into our work life, relationship life, wherever we are, um, what starts to happen is we start to see how we're actually living. And as some of you know, some of the ways in which we're living don't work, are not working so well. We already know that, but when you see it very closely, sometimes you can see why. And it becomes harder and harder to continue doing that if you continue to be awake while you're doing it. So just in general, uh, 
wisdom, without going into it too much in the limited amount of time we have, has to do with seeing the consequences. Vipassana is learning how to see the way things are, the way things actually are. It has no sentiment in it. It is totally unsentimental. It is not the way we want things to be or the way things should be. We should all live to be a hundred years old and be in perfect health. And then when it becomes time to die, we just go like that. We don't even know it happened. But as in the, that isn't the way life is. Instead, what we find is everything changing constantly. That so much is out of control that we don't know when we're going to die. We do know we will die, but we don't know when. We don't know how. Insight or Vipassana is, is seeing the way things are. It's seeing the actual structure of reality. That's what the Dharma is, the, the way things actually are. And that comes about through clear seeing, through attentiveness over and over again, cleansing our vision, and then living in accordance with the lawfulness that we discern through attention. Let me deal with um, three questions that were unanswered and that are part of just a general reflection on wisdom and action. Wisdom and action can range from, let's say you're lining up to wash your dishes here and it's a long line of people and let's say you're just about at the front of it is not doing it very, you know, in a very slow style. That wouldn't be wise. It's a very tiny thing, but, but awareness sees that there are a long line of people behind. There's actually even a term in our practice called sampajana, which is wisdom in action or clear comprehension. It's grasping a whole, the wholeness of the situation rather than just tunnel vision. And at that moment, you wash your dishes and wipe them a bit more rapidly because there are a lot of people waiting. You, st- you try to be aware, you try to be as mindful as you can, but the, the overall situation has intelligence in it. Actually, the universe, the wisdom is in the universe right now. Wisdom is part of the universe. And some of it is enacted, or, the, or this planet Earth would be even worse than it already is. I mean, it, people would just be doing everything wrong. I mean, just everything. You know, we, just would, we wouldn't care about our actions, so I don't care what I do, you know. Just all of us. It would be even worse than it already is. There is some wisdom at work already, right now. When, if those of you took refuge in the Buddha in the first evening, that is just a personification of the wisdom that exists in the universe, which is in us. It's, it's part of the structure of life. And so more and more the seeing reveals it. It's not something that is uh, concocted by, let's say, in a think tank, by the most intelligent people in the society, people who have, all have PhDs and MDs and all of that, who come together for three months of solid investigation. It's something that's there that can be seen if we can get simple enough to begin to see it. And we can learn it. It, ha- it should apply to our life in all the small things. And this awareness is that. It sees the way things are and it can guide our behavior from moment to moment. Okay. 
One question, if I understood it correctly, and if the person who asked it is, it had to do with the mode of concentration, mode of attention, really. That is, let's say, situations change, and how do you keep your mind? Let's say you're a writer or you're a professor and you have to, you have thinking is your job or you're driving a car or you're washing the dishes. Wisdom would help see what is called for at the time. For example, if you have to type up a term paper and it's due in three or four hours and there's no one else to do it, no friend to exploit. You have to do it. Okay. Then a certain kind of one-pointed concentration is called for. It would be help, very helpful if you had it. Or is where you just become typewriter mind, you know, just or word processor mind, you know, just wholeheartedly, undividedly uh, typing the paper. The practice can be brought into this. In other words, you see the mind wander. The mind can actually become much more efficient and skillful, even intelligent, even intellectually so. I mean, ideas can get refined when you start to hear them. Learning can get refined as you start to become aware of how you are learning, blocks in learning, fears come up, and then we kind of divert what we're trying to learn. We don't fully understand. We're reading a book, and we come upon something that we don't fully understand. So we just jump over it and come to read the things we do understand, because that makes our ego feel good. The things we don't understand, it's a little frightening, unnerving. I'm an adult. I had painful experiences in school. I don't want to struggle with that. So when we get through the book, you know, there are all these gaps, you know, just blank areas that we jumped over because it didn't come to us immediately. Okay, a meditative approach on something like that would be we're reading and then we see the emotional relationship between what we're studying what we're studying and, and, and our emotional reaction to it. And we can see the mind perhaps enter into fear or uh, digress and perhaps take a moment and just be with that fear. See that it perhaps is a childhood fear of failing at school or being punished or being ridiculed. Letting that fear out, just as on a retreat here, it's not different. Just as you watch all these things in the mind, you watch them right there while you have your book in front of you. And sometimes it recedes and falls away. Not always. And then you come back to the content. And maybe you try it a few times, working with your emotional reaction. And perhaps it doesn't leave. Perhaps you don't understand four or five times. That's all right. Then wisdom is, okay, I really don't understand this. I've let go of the emotional barriers to understanding it. And I simply don't understand it. Tomorrow I'll seek out a person who might understand this and can help me with it. So just intelligently, you find somebody who can help you with that. So that this very simple practice of keeping up with ourselves can just help release us from all kinds of unnecessary suffering, blocks that appear in all aspects of life. Okay, how to keep our mind from moment to moment. A beautiful spring day. You know, let's say you're walking along, and this actually happened to me. Uh, there was a, uh, the river, the Charles River, it was a few years ago. And the kind of awareness then that might just naturally want to flourish would be perhaps an open kind of panoramic awareness where you're just taking in 
the beginnings of the tree, the green starting to come out, and the water and a beautiful sky. And it's, you're quite alert, quite attentive, and it's panoramic, a wide-angle lens, nothing in tremendous detail, but a real attentiveness. And then in this case, there was suddenly there was an automobile accident, okay, at which point the mind quite naturally shifted into a much more focused or zoom lens. And it just suddenly the, the beautiful sky and the, the river and uh, the beginnings of things growing were dropped and, and attention just was totally aimed at a car and a person lying, lying there next to the car. Okay, we don't need to do a lot to decide what to do on that. I mean, the intelligence is built into life itself. And so all day long, there are times when this kind of one-pointed, very focused, with a very narrow field is very useful to know to be able to do that, to be able to land on an object and stay with it. Okay, now, working with the breath as an object is helping to develop that capacity of one-pointedness. It's very helpful in life. But if we get rigid about that, and all we can do is we get uh, um, fixed, we lock into things and get, I can't do anything else until this is finished. Well, it could be ridiculous. I mean, that would be unwise. The ability to concentrate is very useful, but wisdom helps us know when and how to use it. For example, if you were very concentrated, let's say with the breath and having an extraordinary sitting, and suddenly somebody came in and said, IMS is on fire. Well, what would, what would you do? What kind of... No, you're breaking my samadhi. You know, <laughs> clearly, it would be a different kind of awareness. And then wholeheartedly, I would hope, our awareness would go to what is the most skillful action now for me to do? How to get out of the building, let's say. And so it's a different kind of attention. Now, from situation to situation, the intelligence is usually in the situation. Uh, personally, I found a certain practice helpful for me. From time to time during the day, I'll ask myself, what is my correct situation right now? You know, what is this? Where am I? And it might be, well, you're driving a car or you're sweeping the floor. And then sometimes, at least at the beginning, a little voice would come in and say, okay, then, then sweep the fo- floor, for goodness sakes. Nor is what is my correct situation usually tells you what the appropriate action is, and that's the appropriate kind of energy and attention. If you don't know, sometimes we, we're caught, we don't know, then awareness sees that and just honors it. I don't know what the situation is. I don't know where I am. I don't know what's called for. I don't know what appropriate action is. I don't know what quality of attention would be most wise in this moment. And then we explore, and perhaps out of that, we, we clarify it. I don't know if that... Uh, is that enough? Or okay. There was another question about seeing all the um, sorrow in the world, all the, the violence and evil, was the, the phrase used, rampant. Um, oh... I don't have to mention it, do I? I mean, we all know what's going on um, all over the planet and how to relate to that. In other words, the tremendous um, sorrow or rage that comes up in that. Perhaps the urge for compassion, the urge to help, or anger at what we see as the planet is being lived, as things on the planet get lived out in such a way as to cause so much suffering. 
I don't have, you know, a, a magic answer to that, needless to say, but uh, there are a few guidelines from, from this practice. Let's say it, it has to do with hunger, people starving in, in various parts of the world, children starving, starving to death or having severe malnutrition. And you come upon that fact and there's a strong emotional reaction to it. Perhaps sorrow, deep agony, even tears. And that's, that's good. That's, I think, a healthy reaction to that situation. I hope I don't sound condescending. I mean, I assume that that's pretty obvious. Whether it's literally tears, but something to understand that that's it's too bad. But now, supposing that becomes an ongoing feeling, or is that it's following you around, or every time you hear about Ethiopia, or even when you don't, that it's plaguing you, that there is this tremendous compassion and there's also a, uh, an unending sorrow about it. Well, then perhaps, I don't think there's a, a answer to it, but one way to approach it through wisdom would be uh, to begin to do something about it in your own small way. And the degree to which you do whatever you can do is good. And then there's this relationship which comes up over and over, particularly those of you who are in the helping professions or if you're raising children. Maybe it's all of us in a lot of things. It's the balance between compassion and equanimity. Or is, compassion is that opening to others that opening to other sorrow and a willingness to try to do something to help. But often we do what we can do and then there seems to be a limit. Somehow the world keeps rolling on and seems to want to do what it has to do. At which point, if there's not enough equanimity, we suffer unnecessarily and all we do is add another suffering person to the world without remedying what's happening. So it's taking a very realistic look at where the source of your suffering is at a certain point after you've done what you can do, then there has to be some understanding that there's a karma at work. Or if you don't like that term, there's, there are events that seem to be produced by certain causes that are very powerful. And you make your contribution. You want to help. You offer to teach someone meditation who's very tense. And they laugh in your face. They don't want to learn it. Okay, all you can do is make it possible, make it available. And then if that person is not ready to hear it, if you keep walking around for weeks and months feeling terrible about how you couldn't help this person learn to meditate, well, then there are two of you who are going down. Going down. So the equanimity helps maintain some balance because otherwise the people who are most compassionate would be exhausted from all the many ways in which that compassion cannot remedy all the sorrow that's in this world, which may be something, a lot of it, that we, there is nothing we can do about it. But what we can, it seems, do something about is ourselves. And we are the world. We are every much, as much a part of the world as uh, what it is that we've identified that needs help. Okay, the third area had to do with relationship and 
uh, attachment, attachment and how do you balance attachment and, let's say, a loving relationship? Doesn't there have to be attachment in relationships? Let's say uh, people marry or uh, close friends, whatever. And uh, we didn't go into it, but I'm assuming that uh, in back of that is something that perhaps many of you know, that one crucial teaching of the Buddha is that of this very strong relationship between attachment and suffering. In other words, there... The Buddha at one point gave a very brief statement as to the core of his teaching where he said, uh, nothing whatsoever should be clung to in this world. Nothing should be clung to. As being I or mine. That's the full statement. Nothing in this world should be grabbed at, grasped at, held on to as being I or mine. This is mine. This is me. This, is my, this belongs to me. Conventionally and legally, that may be so. You know, things do belong to people and have to be honored. But in a, from a very prof- profound point of view, uh, at any rate, that's the, the, what is being suggested as the core teaching of the, all of this. Hundreds of volumes keep a mind that clings to naught. It's another way in which it's been said. And two people come together and there's a relationship forms or parent and children, how can there not be attachment? I mean, this sounds like stupid advice or advice for just monks and nuns, which is what we were talking about. Um, All I can say is just practically, um, I think that probably there has to be some attachment. Now, maybe there are some people or some relationships of whatever kind uh, maybe Ramakrishna and Sarada Devi. Maybe there was no attachment. Do you know, was there? Yeah, from the biographies. Yeah, it may be possible for people to be totally loving and totally non-attached. But see, rather than aiming at that ideal and then making ourselves feel bad, or either never getting into a relationship, <laughs> or getting into relationships and flogging ourselves for not being spiritual enough. Um, I think there's another approach, which, which to me is uh, very much in the, um, the way Vipassana is. It's very pragmatic and it starts with where we are rather than where we should be. So that step number one would be, let's say this is a hypothetical relationship. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, you know, it's something I know, so it obviously says something about me, but I have a hunch, of, I hope it says something to you about relationships you're in or have been in. You're in a relationship and let's say you find that, as I did, I found that some years ago that I was very possessive and I got tired of it. In other words, enough rounds of being possessive and tremendous suffering comes from that. Not only for yourself, but after a while you get to understand when you become not totally self-centered, just 90% self-centered, you start to experience the impact on the other person. What it's like, what they feel like, you know, being possessed, being circumscribed, boxed in, and limited. At any rate, um, what is possible? Uh, people are doing it, are working with it, but let me suggest a kind of a, a simple model to just get us launched, and it's not a, some kind of uh, 
ultimate remedy for anything, but it's a way of beginning to bring the practice into relationship life, the life of relationship. Let's say you find that you're involved in a relationship and there's tremendous dependency on your part. Okay, that's what we're concerned about now, us, each one of us, not the other person who's a problem, us. Okay. Step number one, and this is a big one, especially hard for men, it's changing, but it's still pretty hard for a man to admit that he's dependent, that he has strong dependency needs. We just have all kinds of ways of disavowing that, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what me, dependent? You know, I smoke Marlboro cigarettes. How could I be dependent? <laughs> okay. So step number one, assuming that this person is bringing practice into, into their life and into relationship and that it's not limited to the cushion, is to acknowledge it to yourself, is to begin to see how dependent, how possessive you are. And when those moments arise, really to assimilate it into meditation, it's invaluable. It's not easy to do. It's very difficult. Very, very difficult. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. In fact, there's a... I feel that we talked about how this morning, uh, for our generation of, let's say, it's not just America, it seems to be Europe as well, maybe it's more worldwide, uh, a new challenge in that most of the people who really want to do this practice don't want to be monks or nuns. And historically, this teaching has been protected mainly by monks. We owe a great deal to them over centuries. But it's been colored by that as well. And so some of what has been handed to us is not just the core of the original Buddhist teaching, but it is a monastic culture that surrounds it. And certain challenges like the one that we faced are not dealt with in enough detail. Now, the more I've gone into this, the more I see it in the following way. There's something known as the Dutanga tradition in, in Buddhism. These are the ascetic forest monks. Uh, that trace back to the time of the Buddha. They still are still uh, doing their thing in Thailand now. And these, these are yogis who live in the forest. There are a whole long list of all the things that... It's a very strict way of life, including such things as uh, sleeping, sitting up. And, but there was one practice that I read about which I found quite interesting. They would do walking meditation at the edge of the jungle. And there would be, I don't know whether lions or tigers, which... Does anyone know in Thailand? What? Okay. And the practice would be to be doing this walking meditation right on the right up against an area where the tigers were. And the whole point being, if there was fear, then you are potentially the noonday meal. Okay. And if there isn't, there seems to be no problem. If there's love in your heart, the metta is developed then the walking meditation goes on and you're safe. So that was one practice that at least one teacher, a man named Achan Mun, and his students did. They would do lots of walking meditation in these dangerous places. I don't know if they lost anyone. <laughs> uh, although yogis from this uh, approach have been, uh, have been killed by animals, wild animals. But anyway, so that's a quite a stringent practice. When I read about it, I was, boy, that's really commitment to the Dharma. You know, I don't think I would do that. 
But then I thought again, well, wait a minute, I don't have to be apologetic. Some of what we're trying to do, you know, in relationship, let those monks come here and see what they can do. You know, you know, <laughs> uh, in terms of, let's say, being for a man, and I know it mainly from the man's side, being totally honest with a woman, being able to admit fears, being able to admit all kinds of things, not lying, not playing all kinds of games, um, just uh, endless potential in openness and two people really uh, allowing each other in to see all of the flaws and strengths. And I know from a man's side how hard that is to do. That's an ascetic practice if ever there is one. You know, to really, and again, with awareness and with not having to, learning how not to have to be right or not have, whatever, you, you know, I don't have to go into all the details, but we've all probably had difficulties in relationship. And to enter into that rather than to avoid it and to enter into it not as something that we do off on the side. Here's our Dharma practice and here's either it's a break where we go and just boogie and have a good time and then we go back to our spiritual practice. Or it's something we don't even take account, we don't even give it that much. We just, it's something that happens that botches up all the wonderful progress that we make when we go on the retreats. And then we run away from the relationship and I'm just going to sit the heck with all that until we get a little lonely and then we decide that we haven't used it up yet. And we get into another relationship, that ends in suffering, we go on to a long retreat, we go back to another, you know, back and forth. Some version of that. Okay, so that um, it seems to me that many of us have that. And that can be with children as well. How to learn to be a parent that's loving, but it also uh, gives a child freedom, adequate freedom that, let's say, honors what the, ch- for example, a very important one seems very clear, to help a child find out what the child loves to do rather than impose our occupational status preferences on a child. To help a child provide the optimum conditions for the child to find out. It could start with piano lessons, you know, but whatever it is. But really, in your heart, you really are concerned that the child find out what they want to do. And if they decide to be a jazz musician, then don't complain. You know, let them be a jazz musician rather than I wanted you to be a dentist, you know. (laughs) Or if you have that, then you have to work with that. But at any rate, so so this, what I'm suggesting is not limited to, let's say, uh, it's, we're all people are trying to be authentic with each other. But let's say it's a, a, a couple. So step number one is, let's say, identifying that there's tremendous dependency or possessiveness or something, some quality. And it helps if you begin to actually see that it is not a wise way to live. Not as a should, not because everyone in the neighborhood is saying that now the new men's movement, we have to let go of our dependency or admit we're dependent, rather. But rather you, as an act of intelligence, you see that dependency is not a good, it's not a good way to live. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for you. It doesn't create real security. It's very hard on the other person. There's not much good I can say for it, frankly. But anyway, it's there. Okay. So step number one is you acknowledge it to yourself that I have this limitation. I'm, let's say, a very possessive person. If you can do that much, that's wonderful. That's using the practice. Step number two, and this is a very important one, is sharing that with your partner, saying, look, I'm a very possessive person. Uh, I need your help. 
enlisting the person's help. When that happens, bring it to my attention or let me suggest the things that you do that trigger it in me and are painful for me so that both per- people start working together. I mean, it would be nice if both people are involved in all aspects of their life together. But for the moment, I'm just seeing it from the side of one person. So that step number one is if you can acknowledge it, that's good in yourself. And that means you're working on it meditatively. Now, I found that there's a great danger here, especially if you have a strong practice. What can happen is, let's say there's some difficulty in a relationship. All you have to do, let's say you're the big meditator, you know, super meditator. All you have to do is go into your little room, fold your legs, light a stick of incense, follow your breath, and you start feeling tremendously calm and happy. Just, you just feel wonderful. And perhaps you don't even avoid the problem. The problem comes up. Oh, you see it arise. You see it pass away. Impermanent <laughs> phenomena. Has no self. Coreless. Just what the Buddha was talking about. And you walk out of the sitting. You're radiant. What's the problem? There are no problems. But your partner hasn't been let in on it. Moreover, they're still relating to something that you've worked out on the cushion. It's a subtle misuse of the practice so that you get happier and happier, but not dealing with the problem. The problem is is your your partner's stuck with it because you don't necessarily even correct it. It's just that whenever it comes up, it's like taking a drug. You just fold your legs and you're gone. And you feel better. And you have energy. And what's the problem? Why do we need uh, marital counseling? And why do we have to go and uh, get couples therapy? I think everything is wonderful. (laughs) So first we acknowledge it, then uh, another uh, deeper would be to bring the other person in on it. And however deep that can be, of course, the better. I mean, if both people are practicing meditation, it would be wonderful. But even if not, just if if your partner uh, is willing to talk to you about it, that's very, very helpful. And then the third, which is a growing number of people are like this now, and it's quite a wonderful thing. Both people are work together and are committed to come to freedom. In other words, we're working with ourselves as we are, as we find ourselves. It's not doing an impersonation of being a non-attached, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in this relationship and I have no attachments. It's an impersonation. You know, it's like somebody doing an impersonation of President Reagan and you laugh. We all laugh. It's very funny, but it's not President Reagan. That's why we laugh. It's so close. <laughs> Well, an impersonation of being non-attached, and it's become a kind of slogan. Oh, I just let go of that, and I let go of this, and I wonder if we're letting go of so much, or are we just throwing it away, or we say let go to things that we don't even care about anymore. That's easy enough to do. My old teddy bear, oh, I just let go of it. Well, how old are you? Forty-five. <laughs> so that... What can be very useful is, that, is for both people to work together. It's a co- kind of collaborative meditative inquiry where there's uh, revealing, self, self-revelation and then bringing that to the other person where there's uh, a growing trust that you're both committed to liberation. Now, the final thing, because we're running out of time, is something that I have found very, very helpful. In fact, I think it's ultimately the most helpful thing in relationship is to understand that and I have to put this 
okay, let, let's, I'm just talking to myself, you know, just follow your breath or something until I work this out. <laughs> okay. Very often, what we load on to the other person in a relationship is we want ultimate fulfillment from them. Or as we, we have such incredible aspirations and hopes that this other person will totally make my life completely meaningful. And it isn't possible. You cannot get ultimate fulfillment from somebody that's, to use a term that you've heard before, a phenomenon that's changing and permanent and, uh, you know, uh, lacking in self. It's not possible. In other words, here's one changing entity that wants ultimate fulfillment, trying to get it from another entity that's also impermanent. Well, how can that work? And so what, and, the, and they're doing it to us. And so we load on the other person an impossible burden, which is, expresses itself in all kinds of little ways. I don't mean that people say, I want you to be my ultimate fulfillment, source of fulfillment, but I mean in effect we do that. Whereas if there's a deep understanding that there's something even deeper than relationship, which once you grasp that, and it's good if you can begin to taste it, that also includes relationship. It's not that they're two separate things, but there's something deeper than any of the things we can point to in form, in name and form. At which point you understand that you're with a limited person who's themselves subject to change, subject to suffering, that doesn't have a core of a self. It doesn't mean they don't have any self, but according to this teaching, and those of you who are new to it, this might sound strange, but it's something for us to test. Assuming it's true, that would, I think, once you see that, make you more reasonable, more compassionate about your person, the other person's limitations. They're like you. In other words, and when you sit long enough, after a while, you see all of the different things that come up in your mind. I think one of the things that can be very helpful is you understand, my goodness, what I have to watch in this mind about myself. And it's true of everyone else, too, and to some degree, and the content varies. It makes you a lot more tolerant of other people. We're all struggling with this fact that we're changing all the time, and it's out of control, and that there isn't this core that's got it together, and there won't be on this level. There won't be. So if both people see that, there can be a much more comfortable, um, even a strength that can come from their acknowledgement and devoted movement towards ultimate truth, which is something that includes all of us as individuals, but is transcendent as well. I think that's the way things are in the universe. And so if we live without any spiritual dimension and just are wanting this person, either through sexual fulfillment or through loving us and taking care of all of our needs, for that to make it all okay, it's doomed. It's not going to happen. And then we get into all kinds of unnecessary trouble with one another. And so it's a healthy sense of our limits and a movement towards perhaps that which um, we all come to inevitably. And good luck. <laughs> <laughs> So you're not saying that, that in terms of the idea of non-attachment, that one ought not to have relationships? 
Gee, I hope I'm not saying that. Well, I just want to be clear about that. No, no, I thought I'm saying just... What I'm saying is that uh, attachment is... We come to each other. Most relationships start up, start up out of lust. Right? It's okay. In other words, we don't have to be hard on ourselves for that. Okay, that's how it started. Look, most people come to spiritual practice out of greed. And if we said... If we, let's say, tested everyone here, including me, you know, like, no one's going to be allowed to do this retreat if they've come here with impure motives. You know, if anyone has come here because of even a little bit of greed, wanting to be better than you already are, get it back in your car. Okay, we'll, we'll take you back to Worcester and out. You know, we only want angelic creatures and really pure people. There'd be no one, you know, this, nothing. Okay, who cares what brought you here, frankly? In other words, maybe it's, uh, I don't care. Let's say it is greed. Let's say you want God-realization and you want this and you want that or you want to be the most spiritual person so that you can... Uh, I don't know what. That's what brings a person here, but that we need energy to get anything done that's worthwhile. So that's good that you have the energy that got you here. And now the question is not throwing the energy away, but letting go of all of that extra that really uh, hampers the proper unfoldment of that energy. So let's say in a relationship... It's just, we have to start with what we have, who we are. Let's say we're very attached, we're very dependent, we're very insecure. What I'm suggesting is the practice can be brought into that uh, in a movement towards, let's say, relative non-attachment, letting go. Look, even if you let go a little bit, it's very helpful. You know, let's say if we're... The Buddha at one point said, first you identify a knot, then you start to loosen it, then you untie it, and then finally there's no, but you're not bound at all. So even if we loosen up some of the knots that we're, t- we're tied, the way we're tied to each other, we can have some more space, some more air to breathe, so that it's a help. And perhaps there are some among us who may come to total non-attachment and freedom as well as love and remain together and raise families and do all of that. But what I, I'm not setting up that as an ideal. What I'm suggesting is every step along the way with your relationship as it is right now can be helped by discerning awareness and bringing wisdom into action. I think we should end at that because uh, the, the retreat continues. There's, you know, most of you go home, but some of us, we have to keep sitting and walking and sitting and walking. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.